The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Hi, this is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. Harvard class of 2020 graduate Amanda Gorman is called the next great figure of poetry in the U.S., In 2017, she made history by becoming the first ever Youth Poet Laureate of the United States of America. In this role, she has spoken everywhere from the Library of Congress to the United Nations. She is founder and executive director of One Pen, One Page, which promotes literacy through free creative writing programming for underserved youth. As a spoken word artist, she's performed alongside Jennifer Aniston and Lin-Manuel Miranda to advocate for youth leadership and arts education, and spoken alongside Al Gore and Secretary Hillary Clinton for environmentalism and women's rights. She was most recently selected to be one of the newest contributors to the New York Times newsletter, The Edit, tailored to college students and recent graduates. Oh, and she's running for president in 2036. And I have a good feeling we're going to need her. Please welcome Amanda Gorman. Amanda, I'm so happy to see your face even virtually. Where am I finding you? You are finding me in Los Angeles, California. Are you at home? I am at home. I recently moved into my own place for the first oh, time. So this is my me. first home officially. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> What's your current headspace? How have you been holding up? I would say my headspace is a fluctuating state of mind, meaning that it's not the same at any given second, but it's like every single day I'm going through a new journey, learning new things. And it's hard. I'm not going to pretend that all the time everything is right as rain. I think that would be unjust and inaccurate. But what I can say is that I'm learning a lot of new skills about how to deal with the emotions and deal with what I'm internalizing and make it positive and decide what I want to be in control of my life. Right. You can only be in control of what you can control. Right. And right now so much is out of our control. Mm-hmm. Is that a conscious decision of trying to focus on the things we can control? I think it has to be a conscious decision. I think the delineation between mindfulness and mind listeners is just that. I am my most aghast. I am my most depressed. I am my most anguished when I'm not actively counteracting that, when I'm letting something else control my decisions. But I am my most joyful, my most at peace, my most grateful when I put all of my energy and conscious decision-making into that goal of saying, who am I right now and what can I do? Yeah, I like that. And I think that that's really all we can do. And it's very much one foot in front of the other, one day Mm -hmm. at a time, one hour at a time, whatever it is to get us through the mental state that collectively we're all experiencing right now. And the fact that we don't know when that's going to change for us. Mm. Aside from mental state, what do you miss most? Like what has been the biggest blow for you personally in terms of this sheltering in place I miss everything. It's so difficult to name one thing. I miss hugging. I miss friends and family. 
I would say in my own kind of professional life, I miss poetry readings in person. If you're a spoken word poet, you know how important it is to be in the room with people and to feed off with their energy. I always call it a conversation. I never consider it just me on stage performing, but I bring everybody who's in that room with me. And so now that I'm continuing online and doing Zoom and things like that, I'm trying to figure out ways in which I can keep up that energy and that dialogue going while I'm there. But I'll also say that there's some things that I don't miss that I'm really grateful to see. I'm grateful to see more people being, for example, awakened to the fact of racial injustice. The kind of ignorance that surrounded that was something that I do not miss from the old normal. So I think there's a lot of gifts that have been given to us through suffering. One of the things that we like to talk about is in our lives, we have the opportunity and responsibility to determine what kind of lives we want to build for ourselves. And Mm -hmm. we get to create something and design something that ultimately fits who we are and what kind of life we want to lead. And I wonder for you growing up, did you have a sense of what having it all air quoting, looked like to you? I would say when I was a child, I was operating with kind of a limited scope about what was possible. For a while, I didn't know that what I was doing, writing, could be a career and that that could enable me to have it all, that that would empower me to have a room and income and independence of one's own. And so when I thought about what having it all meant, that was in the abstract writing, but I didn't really know what that might look like professionally. I was just thinking if there was a way that I could continue doing what I love, which was storytelling, and I could support myself and my family that way, that would be having it all. And it's only as I've continued to grow as a poet and a person that I think I've started redefining and surpassing even my wildest dreams of what it meant to be a writer, quote unquote, having it all for me, that meant having something published, or I don't even know, like having a best-selling book that was at the top of the New York Times. And I would say, regardless of those things, the life that I've been able to live now is the wildest dreams of what that little child could have thought when that was just defined as how much books you sell. Right. So when you mentioned not really having a model for what that looked like. Mm -hmm. What do you define as the moment that you were able to see something or recognize something where that became a reality for you? You know, the saying, we can't be what we can't see. So if you can't emulate something that Mm -hmm. you've never seen. So do you remember when the world opened up to you to sort of break through to a, a bigger scope of possibility? Definitely. I will mention two instances. One was when I was around eight and I had an English teacher who was a published author. And that was really my first time of meeting face to face someone who was a woman, someone who was publishing. And also, I think someone who was a teacher was really important for me to see someone have their own voice and platform, but also still engaged with their community. And then the second important instance of representation illuminating the reality of my own dreams was the first time I read Toni Morrison, which I want to say is in eighth grade. And for me, that wasn't just about seeing a female who was a writer, but a Black woman who was a writer who was putting African and African-American tales at the forefront of her storytelling. I had not even known that was possible. Up until then, all of the characters and poems that I was writing were about, I loved, you know, writing about girls with red hair and blue eyes, which is fine, but no one had kind of knocked on my door and illuminated me to the fact that 
it's not only okay, but it's wonderful and beautiful to write about girls who look and sound like me. That's so interesting because it's not that you're saying you hadn't prior to reading that read stories where you felt that your likeness was reflected back to you, but you yourself were not writing stories from your own vantage point. Right, exactly. And I had done a lot of reading of like Anne of Green Gables or things like that. So it was a very ravenous reader, but I had not read something that was so unapologetic in its blackness or that even had blackness, I think, as part of what animated the universe of those stories. So it was either animals or white people. There wasn't a lot of delineation in between of where I fit in. Right. And do you think, had your mom made a conscious effort for you? And obviously you have a twin sister growing up. She must have seen you're a voracious reader. Did she make an effort to bring in stories? Do you feel like there was a lack of available options? Or what do you attribute that to? Well, my mom is an English teacher. And so reading and storytelling has always been important in our lives. For her, it was more so, I think, of monitoring how much I was consuming other content so that she could encourage me to create my own. So that meant that as a child, we didn't really watch TV. I was allowed to watch like the Honeymooners or the Munsters, and that was it. Like colored television wasn't even a thing in our household. So I was watching shows from like the mid 20th century and learning a lot about history. And so for my mom, it was like, these are the available options that you can watch. We're only going to do that for a certain amount of time. And then she would turn the TV off because she loved so much more to watch us come up with plays and poems and songs that we would perform. And so that was, I think, the the saving grace that my mom did because she wasn't necessarily focusing on me as a reader, which is important and critical, but she was also attuning herself to my role as a poet and a creator that, yes, I can give my daughter things to consume, but I want to give her the freedom to create. It's so funny because I ask you these questions under the guise of the podcast, obviously, but as you know, I always want to know what your mom did for (laughs) you growing up because I would desperately want to emulate that in terms of raising my own kids. So despite being just slightly, I mean, wildly younger than me and younger (laughs) than anyone that I've ever had on the podcast (laughs) You are already so accomplished and mature, despite having just graduated from college. Harvard, may I add, with honors, may I add. (laughs) Thank you. So was Harvard always your target? Oh, no. No. How'd you get there? (laughs) That's like a lifelong story. I mean, really, and I say this to tons of people, growing up, and I'm not alone in this, Harvard wasn't a school to me. It was an idea. I didn't even really know specifically where it was. It was just this university that you heard about and you saw it and like legally blonde. And it felt as an idea of an institution inaccessible in its own way and remote. And so, you know, when people said Harvard, it sounded like they were saying Olympus. Like, oh yeah, that's something people think about, but like only the Greek gods go there. And college was always the plan for me. I always aimed high. I saw my mom work to get um, her graduate degrees while she was raising us. I would spend time after school working and writing while she was in class. So higher education was always the plan because how could I not aspire for that when I saw my mom putting that at the forefront of her life alongside being a mother. But it wasn't until I want to say late junior year that I started 
considering myself Harvard material. And I think it's a kind of sad story for people of color, especially women of color, when you're thinking about college and higher education, that for so long, not only were these places built without us, but they were built precisely to keep us out. And I started thinking and looking at the people I had heard or read that had gotten into Harvard and thinking, why not me? Why not apply? And my, the best thing or one of the best things my mom did is although she was terrified that I was going to go to school on the East Coast, she took us on a college road trip to Harvard so I could see the campus. And after five minutes of being there, I looked at her and I said, I think I'm supposed to be here. And she looked at me and she said, I think so too. And it was like, I hadn't even applied yet, but we both knew that was where I was going, where I was headed. And that would be farther away from my family, but closer to where I needed to be. And what about it struck you in that moment, do you think, during your tour? Many things. I was laughing to myself because this is something that my family laughs about, which is that like our tour guide had called it cozy. And my mom and I looked at each other like, cozy, like... This is strike me as a cozy place. Yeah, I know. This is Ivy League intellectual like advancement. How is that cozy? But that someone had described it as a home that was appealing to me. And seeing the historical legacy of Harvard and knowing that I wanted to be part of it, not to keep it the same, but to change it and add a new narrative to it. Um, I think often when we think of Black poet, we don't often think of graduated with honors in, you know, a degree in sociology. And so in a way to complexify not only my life, but the very institution in which I was attending. Obviously, I know, and we'll get to some of this later, but you had a very full plate during your time there, as you (laughs) could not be just a typical student going through the typical cozy Harvard experience. (laughs) But did you do some of the normal college stuff? I was laughing. I don't even know what normal is anymore. I don't even know what traditional is anymore. And I think for some people, the parties or maybe the drinking is really important for what they consider to be. Maybe it's having a romantic or intimate relationship. I don't even know. I would say looking back, I don't think I can say distinctly that mine or my experience was like anyone else's that I was immediately attuned to. So it was different and it wasn't normal. But I can say I I wouldn't have asked it to be any other way. And so I would say definitely while I was at school, I felt both in and apart from the student body. I mean, I'd be going to class and then I'd take off on a flight to Washington, D.C. or I'd be doing homework and then I'd have a Zoom for an interview or something like that. And not to say that other students weren't busy, but it felt like the specific nature and degrees of the things that I was dealing with were kind of outside of the realm of my immediate friendship groups who were like, I was just going to go get dinner. You're going to New York in five minutes. Right. You're being invited to the White House and I'm hitting the commissary (laughs) or I'm doing the walk of shame and (laughs) you are going to... Meet Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course. Um, but it's not to say, you know, that their experiences were unimportant, but that they were different. And so I, w- I wouldn't say that, you know, the Amanda Gorman experience is normal, but I would say it was incredibly rewarding. It was fulfilling. And I would say, I think both sides of the world that I navigated made all of the aspects of my life more sentimental and special because I was traveling all over the place. I took my friends in the time we had together very seriously. And we had really great outings and tea parties and things like that, where it was like, I have such sparse time. 
I want to make sure that the time we have together means something because you mean something to me. And not even just with friends, but knowledge. My um, education never took a secondary role. I would be talking to some people and they'd kind of laugh and kind of expect that I was getting like C's or something like that. Because like, no way she's writing the stuff in the New York Times and like still getting A's on her essays. I'm like, I am and I will. Thank you very much. 4.0 GPA. Aha, excuse me. All that is to say, don't limit me. Don't limit me. Don't define me before you know what I'm capable of. All that is to say, I had incredibly rich intellectual experience, incredibly rich friend experience. And can I map that neatly onto anyone else's? No, but I loved the time that I had to become who I am now. Obviously, so much of this stemmed from your journey into poetry. And I wonder what started that for you? Obviously you were writing as a kid and it sounds like your mom really was a big influence for you being an English teacher and pursuing her own studies. But what drew you specifically to poetry? It's almost like recounting your first breath to try to like answer that question. I would say many things. I'll focus only on a few. One of which is to say, growing up, I had a speech impediment, which basically means that a lot of Letters in the English alphabet were incredibly difficult for me to say, such as the R sound, which took me, I wouldn't say until I was like 19 to figure out t or sh were very difficult for me to say. And so having a way in which I could communicate and express myself on paper was extraordinarily powerful, especially as a young, black, skinny girl. And so that drew me to it. But there's also something about poetry which is automatically how my mind thinks. Poetry takes something like prose, which is expected and standardized, and it ruptures it. It disrupts it. It says, how can I deconstruct what I've been taught only qualifies as language? How can I take something as English and destabilize that? And as an activist, as an advocate, that's not only how I think about language, but how I think about social systems. How can I change the way in which I'm thinking about the system that's been taught to me, that's normal, that's been justified, that's been legitimated into getting me to look over the cracks in the bedrock? Well, as you mentioned, as someone who grew up with a speech impediment, and I'm sure for a child that is terrifying because everybody as a kid wants to just fit in. And one of the byproducts of that is obviously that you're going to be constantly standing out. Yeah. Wasn't suffice to limit that word to being on the page. So you challenged yourself even further. And I don't know, you'll have to tell me when this started, but mm -hmm. obviously now you perform your poetry, spoken word style. I mean, it's like theater. So to do that, raise the bar in terms of your self-challenge, mm. getting over a speech impediment, I wonder. And if that was intentional for you to say, I'm not just going to work on my language. I'm going to use my language to create art. And that will ultimately be my greatest expression of self through an avenue where I actually have challenge mm. even getting certain letters out. That is the paradox of my life. I will say I did do a lot of writing on the page, but being comfortable in spoken word took so much longer precisely because of all of the reasons that you brought up. And being drawn to the mic, I think, was both instinctual and also purposeful, meaning that when you love language like I do, 
it's almost inevitable that you feel drawn to those spaces. But it was a challenge, I think, to myself because I didn't want to spend my whole life silenced because I was afraid. And so I started doing spoken word, not because I was over my speech impediment, because I wasn't and I still sounded very different than I do right now, but because what I had to say and how I wanted to say it was more important than the fear I had about my own speech. And it was difficult because sometimes I remember being at like the British consulate's place in like Los Angeles and I was performing this poem about like children's education and I had to say things like world and earth and girls and all of those words were just like death on my tongue. And I remember being in the bathroom, crossing out and rewriting words, like saying, instead of girls, should I say young woman? Should I say, you know, looking for the synonyms, looking for the synonyms that I could without those R's. Exactly. Which is difficult as a poet because I'm like, "Mm, this word is actually what I think is more powerful, but will I be able to say that when the time comes? But I would say the really rewarding thing is that by doing that and keeping on performing, spoken word actually ended up as therapy for my speech impediment. It taught me how to speak, which seems kind of like the chicken in the hand. It's like, shouldn't you be able to talk before you do spoken word? But for me, it was the opposite. It was getting on stage, holding those words that I was so terrified of in my head and seeing them play out that gave me a love of sound, a love of oral performance. And I think when people tell me now, they're like, oh, you're such a strong performer. I'm like, that took blood and sweat and tears to get here. And I'm so happy that I was able to have that journey because it's made me all the stronger. I love that because it's like what you resist persists Mm. and that you were able to face it head on and move through it and take it to the highest level like you did and and so beautifully conquer your own fears in the process. You know, I have to send you this photo. So I was moving and I was looking through all my storage boxes and I came across this little baggie of Ziploc cards that said words like Harvard and university and things like that. Those were cards that I was practicing in my senior year because even then I still had a really difficult time saying Harvard because as two R's. And so looking at that, at this flashcard, I used to practice saying at night so I could tell people where I was going to school. And looking four years later, now graduating from that same school with honors and being able to actually say that, it was an incredible full circle moment for me in my life. Amanda, so I use this qualification for you a lot, just sort of bragging about (laughs) my association to you and our friendship. I'm like, you know, I'm friends with uh, the Youth Poet Laureate for the United States, but you have to tell us, what does this actually mean? How did this come to pass? Amanda Mm. Gorman is the official Youth Poet Laureate of the United States. Mm. I mean, it rolls off the tongue. (laughs) How did this happen? When Mm -hmm. did this happen? Take me in there. It is a long title and it gets confusing, but basically how we became inaugural Youth Poet Laureate of the United States of America, long title, is when I was in high school, I applied to an inaugural program to have the first Youth Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. And somehow I won and I was elated. And then I basically got promoted to 
inaugural Youth Poet Laureate of the West, and there were some other regional Youth Poet Laureates that were named as well. And from that pool of regionalists, there was a jury set up with some members from like the Library of Congress's Poetry Center, and I applied with some of my poetry, the work I was doing in my community, and they named me the first ever Youth Poet Laureate of the United States. What does that mean? Being a Youth Poet Laureate is basically being a representative or an ambassador for poetry and for literature. And there was actually poet laureates without the youth asterisk to it, but they tend to be people who are later in their careers, like August or venerable poets, which is great and fine, but uh, a cohort of organizations felt that young poets necessitated and deserved the same type of platform and respect that older poets are often given. And so that's really what it meant to be the youth poet laureate of the United States. It meant we have a poet laureate who's older than me, but also there's this wave and energy of youth literature and writing that cannot be ignored. How can we put a face and a voice to that? And that happened in 2017. So I was still in college. I'm forgetting if it was freshman or sophomore year. It was like between those two that I was named. And I spent the rest of my tenure in college. Right. So what you're saying, though, is that I could become a poet laureate, but I'm going to be amongst <laughs> the older of the poet laureates. I don't and know. You're, you're pretty young to me and pretty smoking. So I think you could. OK, Whoa, get excuse me. From one youth <laughs> poet laureate to another. <laughs> I'm going to take that as bond. So I wonder, as someone who found success outside of your role as a student, and you've alluded to this, but do you feel like you got a lot of flack from people in terms of your dedication or your focus on your schoolwork? Yeah, um, it, it cuts both ways. I would say, I mean, one of the distinct memories I have of my first week at Harvard is being invited to the White House to meet Michelle Obama as a spoken word ambassador and me having to miss like our first introductory English class for it and it not qualifying as a, a legitimate excuse. And Now, I don't know a more legitimate excuse <laughs> to miss school than to go to the White House under the invitation of Michelle Obama. Right, so what would lady. be the pers- right, what's the perspective of the English teacher or the Harvard administration as far as not letting you go? I, I battled with it and I like challenged that that ruling and I understood it in part because Harvard has a lot of students that are precocious and are traveling all over the world. So it's kind of like, where do you draw the line? But the fact that it was, at least with the officials that I spoke to, treated as if I was trying to like ditch class, as if I was just trying to get out of something. I'm like, I didn't make this up. This is not me going to smoke a bunt like out on the corner. This is me going to the highest house in our land as a representative for poetry. And so for me, it it wasn't necessarily just that people were pushing back on my outside school aims, that they were treating those aims as if they weren't even worthy of attention or worthy of respect. I'm like, I don't want to be treated differently from other students. I don't want to get a pass. I'll still turn in everything on time and early and more, but I'm not going to pretend as if I don't consider the work I do to mean something or else I wouldn't be doing it. And for the most part, I, I wouldn't say I got too much black from my teachers because I always showed up and showed out. Like I said, you don't graduate with honors from kind of like 
sitting back with your hands folded. Smoking blunts in the corner. Yeah, exactly. So long story short, I still went to the White House, even though it wasn't excused. And I took the hit and I still got an A in that class. So you can sometimes have it all even when you think you can't. Oh, thanks for bringing it back to the title. (laughs) Well, also, let's be real. Your life must have seemed very glamorous to the other students who, you know, like we said, were just doing the traditional college routine, you know, what with, like you said, going to meet Michelle Obama and fashion (laughs) shows and the like. Did that period feel that way to you? Or do you feel like it was impacted by a sense of always feeling like you were supposed to sort of be more in one place or another? I would say I was aware of my life outside of school taking up a lot of space wherever I was. And how I reconciled with that is I kept it secret. I'm not saying that I was ashamed about it or anything, but if I was in poetry class, I kept it secret that I was the youth poet laureate of the United States of America until the time was fitting. I had to shut a white boy down. Or I remember being- I'd obviously love to hear that story. (laughs) Oh, it's a great story. Or I remember talking with one of my other poetry teachers and he knew exactly who I was. And he had had a slide on his presentation about poet laureates. And I told him, you know, I'm actually very grateful that you didn't include me in that because I'm like keeping it on the down low. I wasn't trying to, I think, necessarily hide that. It wasn't like I wasn't proud, but I wanted to be a student. I wanted to be Amanda when I was there. I didn't want to even purport to want special treatment because of that. And so a lot of people did not know and they would find out because they'd see my head on some ad on the highway or something like that. So bringing us back to now, obviously you went to school remotely for the latter part of the last semester, Mm. graduating via Zoom along with the rest of class of 2020. And I can't imagine that was the climactic ending to that period of your life that you had anticipated. No. I mean, I was devastated about it, but my family as a whole was, I think, especially my mom, distraught um, because me graduating from Harvard was so much larger than me. My name is Amanda, obviously, but I am the descendant of a slave named Amanda, who was the last in my family line to be liberated um, after the Civil War. And so it took generations, it took history, it took chains to get this Black girl to have that diploma. And so it really meant so much more than just me. It meant, I think, something for my family of what it meant to have us represented in that way. So it was a challenge <laughs> learning virtually and through Zoom. I, I have to admit, I definitely probably watched Netflix once or twice when I was supposed to be watching a lecture. But we pushed through and we got it done. And I'm proud of 2020 for doing it. Right. But like you're saying for your mom, also just sort of this sentimental component to being able to travel to Harvard, watch her daughter graduate in physical presence. And like you said, it was so much bigger than just you. It represented everything that your family has been through. And what I had to tell my mom while she was, you know, crying (laughs) is like, you know, not doing it in person doesn't take away the glory of what just happened, the beautiful nature that not many years ago, our family was property. And now you have, you know, a descendant who is graduating from a school that used to not even have students that looked like me. That is still a miracle. That is still something to behold. And just because we're in LA and not Cambridge doesn't 
take away from the fact that history was just made. As far as taking victories, how do you stay motivated while making sure that you take time to inventory all that you've already accomplished along the way? Well, what I really believe in is making goalposts, so being very expressive and unashamed about the goals that you're setting for yourself, whether that's to do 10 sit-ups or to write a book or to meditate or spend more time on yourself. And I put those on my walls so they're highly visible and they're things I can wake up to. And even when I accomplish them, I keep them on my wall so that they can remind me of the days when that dream seemed so far away from reality but now it is in the past. And so I still have on my wall the paper that said Amanda Gorman accepted into Harvard or something like that. Or I still have from years and years and years ago, Amanda Gorman named Inago Youth Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. I put those things up before I even know if they would happen or they would be true. And I just printed them out and whatever. And now I'm looking at them six, four, whatever years later and saying, remember when that was as big as I could dream? And now the life I'm living surpasses any of those fantasies. Amanda, do you feel like for you, because obviously this is such a precarious time to be starting out your life. And I don't think of you as someone who's starting out her professional life (laughs) because you have done so many things. But do you feel Mm. like because you have had so many accomplishments outside of school that it sort of quiets or lessens the anxiety that you feel right now comparative to other people who are Mm. graduating as part of your class, who are looking at this as when they were going to start building their professional life? Well, I can't speak for anyone else, but I can definitely say for me, and especially in conversations with people who are immediate to me, I mean, take case in point, my twin sister, who's the exact same age as I am, graduating at the exact same time as I am. It is a very anxious, nerve-wracking time for all of us. And I think particularly if you don't have an economic or social or familial base, it's a very precarious time. It's a dangerous and devastating and horrifying time. I think as Oprah said in basically her graduation speech, she said, you know, inequality is a pre-existing condition. We're seeing so many people who were living already close to the edge And if you're trying to start a career, if you're trying to start a professional journey at that time, it it feels like you're Sisyphus pushing the mountain up the hill only to see it roll back down and have to begin again. And so I definitely say that across the board, anxieties are elevated, but I will not pretend as if I am completely alien to that. I mean, sure, I'm a writer and I'm a poet and I've already done a lot of things by this age, but ask any artist and that is one of the most precarious positions to hold in a society. Already, especially if you're of color and a female, you're going to be underpaid if you're paid at all. And so you will have to work and struggle to support yourself. And that is a very vulnerable position to have. And I would say having a title helps me in some ways, but I can tell you I'm still getting tons of emails and requests where people want my time and my energy and my creativity for nothing. And it's not that I don't want to write and I don't want to give, I don't want to contribute, but I too have bills to pay. I too have food that I need to eat. Um, And so there's like anxiety there. But the good news is, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, what are the emotions that I want to guide my life? 
And I don't want my decisions to be based in fear, but in courage. And so I think if anything, my experience as a youth poet laureate has taught me to bring that dauntlessness to what I decide to do, whatever it is. Well, you know, not only are you graduating during a global pandemic, but the world has been turned upside down by an acute awareness of how little has changed in terms of the amount of systemic racism still prevalent today. As a Black woman, I can't imagine that that's of any surprise to you, but obviously we're in a civil rights movement right now that must be stirring up a lot of emotions that added to the global pandemic, added to all the uncertainty, must just be so much to bear. And I wonder, you know, for you personally, how you've been navigating that in your own life. I will say it's been really interesting because at around the point, I will say in June, in which a lot of this energy started kind of reaching a peak, all of this fire and desire, which I really supported in terms of advocating for social change. And the whole time, or at least particularly in the beginning, I felt so tired. I felt so exhausted and I felt so drained. And maybe this is something unique to marginalized communities, but people who have kind of been looking outside in, and I'll say this very particularly when I think white America begins to awaken to things that African-Americans have gone through for generations, for hundreds of years and saying, wow, this is devastating. This is horrible. You kind of just look at them and say, have you not seen us bleeding? Have you not seen us on our knees? You just get exhausted with the human capacity of suffering that's been endured by people of color. And so it was, I think, a lot to handle. And particularly because I started feeling ashamed of my exhaustion. Like, shouldn't I have more energy? Shouldn't I be more ready? And I started to eliminate shoulds and normative language from my thinking of myself. And it started, instead of saying should, saying want. I want to be ready. I want to be willing. I want to have this energy, which might not be where I am now, but it's where I want to be. And so focusing on things which fueled my fire. And for me, that home, that Gnostic is always poetry. And so I got to work and I started writing. And I think all of us have different types of home bases and touch trees that we can grasp onto when we're feeling far out at sea. And for me, that's just always been words. But having that to go back to the ground myself, to get ready again for the battle that I have been tired of fighting, that I've been tired of seeing my parents and my grandparents fighting, but knowing that I can wield this weapon of words like no one else I know. So God give me the energy I need to use it. That's the blessing and the gift that you have in your ability to channel all the emotion and the frustration and the anger and the madness of what you have been experiencing into actual expression and your work. While that is something that's unique to you, you also are a human being, right? Who outside of that is still feeling that. And so when you say I'm removing shoulds, because there's no, just like there's no normal experience, there's no should. We cannot define your capacity. I was learning, I think, to live my own truth and to trust that. And it might be a different note than yours, but it's part of the same song. And so there's no shoulds in that, but there's just what is. And what is, is I'm a Black 
female writer who is living in the existence of what it means to be gendered and colored, who is finding her truth in language. Do you feel that where you live and do you feel any shift towards positive change that you could identify? I would say because my life has been limited to my room, uh, mostly um, because I shelter in place or, you know, stay at home, the sensations that I get of change tend to come virtually or from what I can see from my window. And of those two things, I am seeing really, I think, good progressions, whether it's getting messages from people I know who are going out to protest or even just calm, beautiful things like people outside wearing masks. I don't take that for granted because I know so many people don't. Or even looking on social media, I was just going through all of kind of the accounts that I tend to follow or maybe even the ones that I don't and looking and saying, I have never seen this person before post about X topic. And here they are, not just posting, but showing up or calling or petitioning or signing or volunteering. That's really energizing to me because it means that new people are being gathered into our army. And I think we need a new blood and we need a new flesh and we need a new idea. So that's exciting to me. I'm hoping, obviously, that that is going to lead us somewhere better than we are now. Me too. Sitting from the vantage point where you sit today having graduated, looking out at the world as it stands, the idea of having it all, does it remain the same to you? Having it all, I think I've grown in what I've thought about it since I was a a kid. There's this great scene in Scandal, sorry, gotta bring this up, where Olivia Pope is talking with her dad. He says something like, you can't have it all, Olivia. And she's like, watch me. And I've always had that in the back of my head. Because I think if you define what all of it is as your own truth, you can have it. Who says you can't? And for me, my truth of what it means to have it all isn't necessarily about money or fame or followers. It's about I want to have a home and I want to have a family and I want to love myself and others and what I do and what I fight for. Who says I can't have all of that? Who says I can't love and be loved? Who says I can't create and get better? Who says I can't write and learn? All of those things are possible. And so you can have it all as long as you stop pretending that you're living by somebody else's definitions. I love that. I'm so glad that you could talk with me today. I want to ask you one sort of silly question, but it's called the riff. It could be a practice. It could be a product. It could be a service. Is there something that you have found that makes your life easier in some way or expedites things or simplifies things? Two things. One would be finding mastery and the second would be finding affirmation in my own life. So by mastery, it's focusing on the simple things I can control. So I get up and maybe I start the day by cleaning or by reading or by getting something done, like making my bed or brushing my teeth. And I congratulate myself because that is something that needs to be celebrated. And then the other one in terms of affirmation is I write positive messages down in my journal and I keep it by my bed. So if I'm going to sleep or I'm waking up and I feel depressed or I feel sad, I can just roll over and grab that and read that over to myself again and again. It will say things like, I'm doing the best I can right now. This situation won't last forever. 
and my perfectionism will crush my creativity. So how do I look at what's now and ask what next? But I try to live my life full of affirmations like that. Okay, Amanda, what is next for you? Having just graduated, I know that you were working, I believe, on a children's book. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know you've got lots to talk about and lots of projects in the works. So what can we look forward to? Uh, Well, speaking of the children's book, you can look forward to that. I have two coming out with Viking, which is a division of Penguin Random House. So the first children's book, it's called Change Sings. I have not decided what the second one will be called, but I will let you know when it is. And you can look out for that coming out sometime in 2021. Amazing. And then you were telling me a little bit about a program that you're working on as well, a creative program for young writers. Yes. So I am on the board of 826 National, which if you don't know, is an incredible nonprofit youth writing network. And they've been doing an amazing job putting free resources online for teachers, students, parents who want to practice creative writing and want to get their pens moving. And so if we have any youngsters at home who are kind of stir crazy and looking for things to do, going to 826digital.com is a great way in which to just try out writing and see how it goes. That's incredible. And trust me with two uh, youngsters at home that are (laughs) going stir crazy, I will definitely be looking that up. For anybody who doesn't follow you currently, where can they find you? You can find me Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's all the same username at Amanda S.C. Gorman. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And I continue to look forward to watching incredible things for your future. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review only the good stuff. Of course, hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and spread the word to all of your friends. Thanks for joining and please follow along at having it all podcast. See you next week.